scary. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been here since the opening, and I haven't seen it except with um, sort of formal occasions. We did New Year's Eve here, too. Um, This is wonderful. It's... Every time I come, it's all gussied up even more in just the right way. Feels good. Feels very good. I think I must have come to um, to this same group, or at least this Monday and this Sunday group, about a year ago um, in Portola Valley. Is that right? <laughs> You remember. Uh, and I remember being so um, almost dazzled by the springtime, by the, the new leaves on the trees. There's that misty green as you, as you travel. Um, everything is brand new all over again. It, it seems to be, to me, one of the stranger aspects of our life that it keeps not only changing, but starting over again and again and again. And springtime is a, a, a very vivid expression of that. The human race has... Um, taken this springtime and turned it into uh, a number of of celebrations. Um, Passover this week, Um, Easter very soon, and Buddha's birthday. Um, in, In some traditions, Buddha's birthday is celebrated along with his death day and his enlightenment day all in one one package. Um, And that's usually around the 1st of May. But in um, most Zen traditions, it's it's celebrated on the 8th of April. So it fits right in. It usually comes just around Easter time. And I'm about to go to New Mexico and uh, sit a week-long retreat in celebration of Buddha's birth. Tanjoi Sashin, they call it. The birth birth time. And then at the end of the Sashin, after the week of sitting, we, we have a, a sort of small, simple ceremony. Um, people come and fill up the zendo with flowers. And um, all the neighbor children, all the kids from, from all around, and their parents are invited to come. And on the altar is set up, surrounded by flowers, a a statue of the baby Buddha. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen those statues. Um, It isn't exactly a little kid. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't, certainly newborn. But it's supposed to represent the story of the baby Buddha, who as soon as he came out of his mom, stood up, and took seven steps around and pointed up and pointed down. And that's what you see in those statues, is the baby pointing up and down. And he says, above the heavens, below the heavens, I alone am the world-honored one. 
always think every little baby says that when she's born. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> and, and it's true, of course. And all through our life, I think that becomes a kind of, of puzzle for us. This I alone one. What is this I aloneness of us? that gets born into the world. It's very strange. Zen is um, uh, celebrates and practices what's called self-power as opposed to other power of um, other kinds of Buddhism. Um, It's a very interesting distinction. And in this case, it it seems like this this Zen story about Buddha uh, being born and saying, I alone am the world honored one is um, characteristic In Zen, we come to the cushion and we say, um, to start with, I'm sitting. Um, in um, Pure Land Buddhism, for instance, which is posited as, as the opposite of Zen, you could say, um, people are, are brought to practice by the mercy of Buddha itself. And so one is a a very uh, humble kind of practice. And one seems like a kind of arrogant one. Well, here am I sitting. But of course, as we all know, with meditation practice, um, however we come to sit, um, we become humbled pretty quick. Um, It's an encounter with all of it all of it as I am, this one of the world. All the thoughts and all the experiences and um, the creaky body and, and every difficulty and every glory as well comes down and sits with us. It's what we are. There's another Buddha's birthday story, though, uh, that appears in um, Nanamoli's Life of Buddha. Nanamoli was a bhikkhu who um, studied in Sri Lanka for many, many years and did wonderful translations of the early sutras. Tried to find the earliest, earliest, closest to real Buddha stories that he could and strung them all together into a life history. And the only early story he could find about the birth was very different from the Zen story. It said that when the Buddha was born, a tremendous light shone, brighter than the sun and the moon. It was so bright and so so golden that it shone even into the darkest places that had never seen light before. 
And there were beings in these places who, because it was dark, didn't know that there were other beings there with them until that light shone. That's a very beautiful way of talking about what Buddha brought to us. It's almost inexpressible. This alone feeling, this sense of being separate that haunts us so often is shown on by Buddha's teaching, by our meditation practice. When we go outside after a a long sit, um, the world looks brighter, doesn't it? The leaves glitter with silver and the smells and the sounds are so clear and so close. One old teacher said, when we sit, we open ourselves to the whole universe. We're no longer arranging things, um, adjusting our mind to things. We're simply being open to all of it. So every grass blade uh, has a teaching in it for us when we meet it. This question of of meeting um, is a very basic one. Um, They say we should at least have one real meeting in our life. What does that mean? One real meeting. Face to face and knee to knee and belly to belly, heart to heart, and eye to eye. In a way, I think we practice for that, or that is what practices us. We talk about beginning, we talk about new beginnings, philosophically speaking, um, we're beginning all the time. It's an illusion that um, that we have a story that's all strung together. 
in, in, in Buddhism, they talk about Nen moments. And a Nen moment is infinitesimal fracture, fraction of, of, of a second, you could say. And those moments are happening. Um, and we, so that each moment is slightly different from the moment before and the moment after. It just keeps changing and changing rapidly, so rapidly that it, for us clumsy beings, it all just runs together. It runs together and then from that we pull out the parts that we like and we don't like and make a story out of it. I was talking to a friend the other day and she was telling me her story, and uh, it was a very powerful and difficult one. And when she started, she was so sure of the storyline, and she just spread it all out and told the whole thing. And then she thought, oh, but then this thing happened over here, and that sort of contradicted the storyline, actually. And then this happened over here, and that was quite different from what she had been expressing. And she, we both suddenly realized, oh my gosh, this whole story is so big that we could never even begin to get to the bottom of it. That's amazing, isn't it? It's true about everything that we are and everything that we do. It's bigger than we can conceive of. And so they say about concentration practice that whatever you um, attend to, whatever you give your attention to, know that you're leaving out everything else and that everything else is immense. It's very humbling. And yet on the large scale, of course, um, we, we can separate things out and distinguish them and, and try to understand them. That's so we say it's spring, not fall. Uh, here, of course, it's fall in South Africa, not spring. So once you start to extrapolate, it gets bigger and bigger again. Um, it's a way of talking about how provisional and uh, temporary and un- uncertain, really, our ideas about things are. Our ideas about things uh, often are, are the ideas of beings in the dark who don't know what else is there. It's why we sit down, sit down um, with and in and by and um, for the light.
how we share our practice. How we stand up and go out and meet. Um, can be seen very clearly in Buddha's life. From the time he was a child, there are all kinds of Buddha child stories. Including the one when he realized um, way before he actually did it about sitting when he sat in his father's garden under a rose apple tree. and felt such simple felicity. To be open to everything doesn't mean some special, fabulous experience. It just means being where we are and being present for where we are. And who we are. Rumi says somewhere, the mind, the mind and the deep self walk and talk together like friends. So in a way we're beginning every single moment. And often we forget that and get bored with where we are and what we're doing. Uh, It's a dreadful human condition, especially in situations where we have so much. And all the mindfulness practices are so helpful in in this slowing down process so that we can actually be where we where we are i just talked to a friend who had learned the red red light meditation um, she's one of those people who's very antsy and always in a hurry And someone had suggested to her that when she got to a red light, instead of sitting there wanting to get right through it and being very irritated and upset, to just breathe. And uh, she came back to report that she was getting upset when the light turned green now. (laughs) 
such funny things we are. I've been thinking, especially reading these old stories of Buddha and all the different ways of characterizing the teaching of Buddha, um, how very different our lives are from that. Even even in India and Burma, um, after, after so many thousands of years, It's very, very different in the way that we live our lives. The, the amount of speed that we're, um, we're, we're twirled around in, you could say, um, the amount of noise. I've been looking for a house to buy and um, I'm amazed at how many noisy houses there are. (laughs) Um, I never really thought about it before but most of us live on the edge of a freeway or on the edge of a very busy road. I live close to El Camino so I hear all of it all the time. It's a very different kind of experience for us. And so although we we know about Buddha's life, walking, walking from town to town, everything was about walking in his day. And in most people's day, this... This new kind of walking that we do is, is very, very new. I think it takes a lot of study for us to really see how we live, how we're living now, so that the teachings don't become some extra old-fashioned thing that we're sort of... Uh, sticking on to ourselves or taking on in, in some ways but not in other ways that um, that it must apply it must apply in the darkest bar on El Camino Real <clears throat> if it's true here and where that truth lies how that truth lives itself in us, in our life, is our great study. This Insight Meditation Center itself is part of that great study. 
and the fact that it began in another tradition is a part of that also. And it has Tibetan prayer flags all over the Insight Meditation Center. It's, it's a very wonderful expression of, of it. But it expresses even more wherever else we go. Behind the wheel of a car, or in the kitchen, or at the bank. Sometimes they say we should use the great teachers as models for us. We should imitate the life of Jesus or imitate the life of Buddha. But I think they would have said, your your life is your practice, your life. What they did was to exemplify their own life fully and completely, to open it up. And that's our charge, too. That's our charge as we came out of our mom and pointed to the heaven and pointed to the earth. So maybe that's enough. Um, we can have a discussion if you like. Questions? Angie, um, could you say something about um, maintaining, you know, mindfulness when we're we are rushed, when there is no choice, we don't have the red light to stop in. It gets harder, doesn't it? <laughs> But actually, there are always red lights to stop at. Whether that, I mean, we can create for ourselves wherever we happen to be um, reminders. Um, I know someone who carries a, a rock in her pocket. Um, it was Josephine Duvenek who always carried a rock in her pocket, and every time she reached in, it was there. Um, or you can you can tell yourself um, it's time to see the sky. I have several friends who use the sky as a mindfulness practice. If you're rushing along, you can always look up, and we often fail to look up. So it's a very beautiful practice to do that. Um, we can choose what um, what will slow us, uh, even though we're traveling fast. Our mind doesn't have to travel so fast. Um, I, I used to go to various meetings with a friend who, when we were late, 
and I would be upset about it and saying, oh, we're going to be late. She would say, there's nothing you can do. Just relax and enjoy the trip. And um, that I think we can do a lot more. Um, it, it's the mind that speed it up. It isn't, it isn't the situation so much. We let the mind get fast in a kind of greedy way, really trying to accomplish more than we need to accomplish and get to more places than we need to get to. Um, it gets to be part of this this huge surge of greed that we live um, among, um, especially, I think, in, in large cities like this, this huge uh, metropolitan area that we're in. So... A big part of it is getting to know our own mind. And the, the red light helps, you know, but anything helps that we can, we can stop and be with. Um, I have a friend who's trying to uh, figure out a way to duplicate Thich Nhat Hanh's little bells that are ringing all the time. And finding them in different places. So when the telephone rings, that's a, wait, a time to stop. Um, when a siren goes, that's a time to stop. And as soon as we stop, we realize how uh, unreal we're being. Um, so it's 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 just like sitting in a way. It's it's the the mind goes wandering off and sitting, and then poof. If we remember and come back, then um, there's no rush at all. There's no hurry. So that the point is to simply return, return to the breath, return to being, to being here. Does that help? Just the struggle that's always there to the political realm where something doesn't uh, move fast enough by just sitting. So I always struggle with the yes, but um, what does one really do? Um, And as you were speaking, I thought of two things. and one was clear out the living room and have no furniture. And one was, before I died, walk to Washington with sheets of paper about what I want done or, or something. <laughs> but, you know, um, Brava. <laughs> Go for it. Yes, I mean, the older one is, the more that might count. But um, that is the struggle. It's, it's just um, sitting is very helpful, but the direct action. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the, the, the curious thing about the way our mind works is that we, we are very good at overall pictures of things. We, we get this huge picture of how, and then this huge feeling that we need to do something huge. 
Uh, <laughs> and the, the reality is that all we can do is just the thing that we're doing. And, and it's a tremendous limitation in, in one way, but it's also a, a great power in another. Because if we're really able to be where we are and do what we're doing, we're free, free of the tension of that overall picture, which creates tremendous tension and binds us up with frustration because we can't do it all. But we can do the things that we can do. And if it means something very simple like standing in witness in Palo Alto um, against the war um, or going to Washington and talking to uh, someone. Um, There are many, many one things that we can do, but we can only do one thing at a time. And if we we try to conceive too much, we just get um, frustrated because we're so small and so helpless, really. And although there's there, and our tradition is a, a wonderful tradition of empowering all of us to be able to do whatever we can to change things, um, we we have to also see the other side of it. That events are and forces are are like a great river. They're the river of the river of our life, and so it it's. It works both ways. Oh, please go to Washington. (laughs) Well, thank you all very much.